Thanks for that great introduction to the program, Larry. I want all of our listeners to know that there is a PDF lesson outline available for this podcast. There's always some extra information and sources listed in it, which we do not always cover here in the podcast. And most folks have found it very helpful to have it open in front of them as they listen. The PDF is not posted on the Covenant Key website, however, but I'd be happy to send it to you if you simply email me and request it. My email address is preterist1 at preterist.org. Let's ask God for His blessings on our study together. The one and only true God, whose name means self-existent and always existent, and who alone knows all things, including all of the past, all of the present, and all of the future, we give you all praise and glory and honor. Your splendor fills all the heavens. You alone are holy, righteous, merciful, and gracious. Your love is everlasting, and your long-suffering is inexhaustible. We humble ourselves before you and ask for your guidance upon this nation who has forsaken your ways. Help us to turn back to you and follow your ways again with a whole heart. And be with us now as we study your holy word. Help us understand it better and apply it to our lives in a way that helps us grow spiritually so that we can teach others your ways and build your kingdom in their hearts. It is for your glory and in the matchless name of your Son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. I want to thank Larry, William Bell, Edmund Lee, and Parker Vall for going to the Evangelical Theological Society conference with me this past week. This was my 14th consecutive year to put up an exhibit booth there at their annual meetings. There were five of us full preterists working the exhibit booth, We were able to get a lot of free preterist books and media and articles into the hands of dozens of new contacts. We planted lots of new seed. This is something which helps the whole preterist movement. Larry uh, was there and he recorded some of our comments after our exhibit booth work in the evenings. We had some meetings there. We had Larry there to record the things that we saw and heard and experienced in our interactions with those scholars who came by our exhibit booth. There were a couple of local preterists there in the Milwaukee area also, uh, Marco Grukowski and Darren Laberski, who met with us on Thursday night after the exhibit booth was over, and they shared their stories of how they became preterist. And that was very interesting. Larry's going to be posting all those comments that he recorded there on the Covenant Key website sometime soon. Very exciting, very interesting to see how the preterist message is being received by the conservative scholars in the evangelical world. As far as I know, there was only one person who seriously tried to argue against preterism and try to refute it there at the uh, conference. And we did our best to answer his objections and show him the way more accurately. Otherwise, our interactions with the attendees there were very positive and congenial. Over the years, we have seen some significant fruit come from this effort, and every year it just gets better and better. 
the hostility and resistance keeps decreasing, while the interest and receptivity is constantly increasing. When we started exhibiting there 14 years ago, most of those scholars had never heard of the preterist view. Now that scenario is just reversed. Most of them have at least heard of the preterist view, and most of them even have a vague idea what it's all about. Past fulfillment of prophecy in 70 AD. Just having an exhibit booth there at this conference automatically positions us as conservative Christians and as a valid option within evangelical Christianity. We should continue to take advantage of this opportunity as long as the Lord uh, opens the door for it. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, we had a sign made up that we put up at the top of our exhibit booth background, uh, which says the Preterist Booth. And there's an interesting story behind that. Uh, one year, I was uh, down eating in the cafeteria, and I overheard a couple of people talking about uh, Russell's book, The Parousia, which uh, one of those guys had received a free copy of there at our exhibit booth. And I overheard their conversation about the book, and the other guy who didn't have a copy of it was saying, where'd you get that book? The guy who had the book said, oh, I got it down there at that preterist booth. That was the way he was describing our exhibit booth, and so I thought that might make a pretty good sign at the preterist booth. And so it's worked pretty well for us, and it identifies exactly who we are and what we stand for. Underneath the words, the preterist booth, it says, past fulfillment of Bible prophecy in AD 70. And I think that really helps a lot of people who are just walking by the booth casually get a real quick grasp of what preterism is all about. Well, as you can imagine, uh, the expenses for an exhibit booth like this, plus the travel, and lodging, and food, and other expenses are enormous. And we couldn't do this without your prayers and support. We have a number of people who are supporting us and helping us, but it's never enough. And so uh, I would encourage you, if you're able and God puts it on your heart to do so, uh, we would very much appreciate your donations to help defray those expenses. Simply email me at preterist1 at preterist.org and let me know that you'd like to help with that and I will contact you and make all the arrangements. Well, last time we finished our brief look at the life and work of Barnabas and Mark. We noted that Barnabas probably wrote his epistle about the time Paul was in prison in Caesarea, AD 58-60. The epistle of Barnabas was very critical of the Jews and probably provoked the Jews to hunt him down and kill him there in Cyprus. And we shared some of the traditions about Barnabas and showed how the biblical data about Barnabas harmonizes pretty well with those traditions, giving us a reasonably good date for the death of Barnabas, which probably was just before John Mark shows up in Rome to be associated with Apostle Paul thereafter. And we can tell from the book of Colossians and Ephesians that that must have occurred in about AD 61 or 62 at the latest. And so sometime before he shows up in Rome with Paul is when Barnabas must have died. 
Now, keep in mind that we're talking about events that occurred at the time Paul was in prison in Rome in AD 61 to 63. This is just before the Neronic persecution broke out in the summer of 64. And, of course, it's not long before the Jewish war with Rome began in 66 AD. So, we're getting close to the end here. The birth pangs and signs of the end were becoming more frequent and intense. If Barnabas indeed died in the AD 60 to 61 time frame, as we're suggesting, and Mark came to Paul in Rome soon afterwards, it implies that the book of Acts was not written until after Paul got to Rome in AD 61. And here's the reason why. Because in the book of Acts, chapter 11, verse 24, it eulogizes Barnabas and speaks of him in the past tense as if he was already dead by the time the book of Acts was written. We looked at the biblical and historical evidence which harmonizes with this, and I want to look more at this idea that the book of Acts was written in AD 61-62, to because in our previous studies we had suggested an earlier date of AD 58-60 to while Paul was in prison in Caesarea. After studying all this information about Barnabas, I have changed my dates for the books of Luke and Acts, and I want to explain uh, that more fully in this podcast. While I was at the Evangelical Theological Society meeting this last week, I had the chance to talk to Dr. Dennis Swanson. He's one of the professors at the Master's Seminary in the Los Angeles area. And he's done quite a bit of study on the date of Luke and Acts. So I cornered him over at his exhibit booth. And he's convinced that both Luke and Acts were written in Rome while Paul was awaiting his trial there, AD 61 to 62. He agreed with many conservative scholars that Theophilus was probably a Roman government official acting on behalf of the Roman court trying to discover whether there was any substantial case against Paul uh, and then inform Nero of the results of his investigation before the case went to trial. It's also possible that Theophilus was the defense attorney for Paul. He likewise would have needed all the information that Luke and Acts provides uh, so that he could defend Paul adequately in Nero's court. So uh, it doesn't really matter either way uh, whether Theophilus was the defense attorney for Paul or whether he was a court official for Nero investigating the case. Both of them would have needed the same information about Apostle Paul and Christianity. Well, before I did all this research on Barnabas, I leaned toward the idea that the Gospel of Luke and the first 20 chapters of Acts might have been written while Paul was still in custody in Caesarea for two years in AD 58-60, before he appealed to Caesar and went to Rome. However, after doing this research on Barnabas and talking to a number of these scholars who have done heavy research on Luke and Acts, uh, I'm convinced now that Luke wrote Luke and Acts after Paul reached Rome in AD 61. As we noted in the last two sessions, it appears that 
Acts 11.24 eulogizes Barnabas as if he was already dead by the time Acts was written. And by using the movements of John Mark that are mentioned in Colossians and Philemon and other epistles of Paul, it seems that Barnabas must have died about the same time Paul was on his voyage to Rome or shortly afterwards, which would be late 60 or early 61. Since Paul is there in Rome and Mark shows up in Rome with Paul in either late 61 or early 62, uh, this implies that Barnabas had just died before that, and Mark now was instructed by Barnabas to go to Paul after Barnabas died. And so we see uh, Mark showing up in Rome in 61 or early 62 A.D. All right, since these two books, Luke and Acts, appear to be written to a Gentile audience and include several encounters with government officials and courts, and the book of Acts supplies several legal precedents, it implies that the book of Acts especially was written for Paul's defense in Nero's court. Some of those legal precedents that are mentioned in the book of Acts would have been very interesting for Nero, and all of this accumulated weight of evidence, I believe, favors the idea that Luke and Acts were written for one of Nero's court officials right after Paul and Luke reached Rome in the spring of 61, and were most likely finished by the spring of 62 before Paul's case went to trial in late 62 or early 63. An obvious question arises as to what kind of government official would need, request, or expect a full briefing on all the facts in consecutive order regarding Christianity and Paul's involvement with it. We suggested previously that this could have been the former high priest Theophilus, who might have used the unjust treatment of Apostle Paul by the rival high priest Ananias as grounds for getting Ananias deposed. There is at least one article on the internet defending that idea that Theophilus was a former high priest. Uh, the reference for that, of course, is in the PDF here, and so if you just email me afterwards and request the PDF, you'll have the link for that website. It seems unlikely to me that Paul or any of the apostles would get involved in party politics like this uh, with a former high priest who was trying to, to unseat and depose Ananias for his mishandling of Paul's case especially to the point of writing two whole books for Theophilus' use against Ananias. Uh, that doesn't seem likely. I don't think the apostles would get involved in party politics like that. If Theophilus was a former high priest of the Ananias family, he would have already known most of the facts about the gospel and the history of the church in Jerusalem after Pentecost. He would not have needed these two books written for his instruction. He would only have wanted material which clarified Paul's relationship to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the facts about his unlawful arrest in the temple and his unlawful treatment in the trial before Ananias. 
That's the kind of information he would have been looking for, and the book of Acts does not really supply much of that. It supplies much more information that a Gentile audience and court would want to know. Not something that uh, a Jewish high priest would have been interested in. It therefore seems unlikely that Theophilus was a Jewish ruler, and much more likely that, that he was a Roman court official or defense attorney for Apostle Paul. A defense attorney in Rome would definitely have needed this very kind of information that Luke and Acts provides in order to adequately defend Paul in Rome. However, such an appointment of a defense attorney could not have happened until after Paul appealed to Caesar in late A.D. 60, and probably not until he reached Rome in A.D. 61. This means that the two-volume work of Luke could not have been written until after Paul appealed to Caesar, and was either on his way to Rome or after he had arrived in Rome. Luke would have had easy and abundant access to the other apostles in Jerusalem while Paul was in prison in Caesarea, AD 58-60. His research for Luke and Acts might have been done then uh, while Paul was in Caesarea, even though the actual writing did not take place until they reached Rome. That's certainly possible. Since the book of Acts ends with Paul's release from Roman imprisonment, the book of Acts must have been finished no later than 63. But there is good reason to believe that the main corpus of Acts, minus the last three verses of chapter 28, was indeed finished before Paul's trial began in early 63. Whoever this Theophilus was, it is apparent that he had requested a full briefing on Christianity and the church and Paul's activities. He wanted the clear, undisputable facts documented for him that he could take with him into a court of law. That sounds like something a court official or defense attorney would require. Also, the apologetic tone of Acts, where he's defending Paul's uh, integrity, along with all of the precedent-setting court cases that are mentioned here in the book of Acts, all of this suggests that it was written for the purpose of helping Paul in his defense before Caesar. Luke says that he consulted at least two other gospel accounts that were already in existence, which most likely, in fact, almost certainly, must be Matthew and Mark and that he verified all this as accurate and reliable by talking to those who knew the facts, which implies those folks in Judea. While Paul was stationed there in Caesarea for two years, Luke would have had free access to those guys to determine all those facts. And so it seems that uh, Luke must have done some of that kind of research during those two years Paul was in Caesarea, but didn't actually write the account until he got to Rome. Luke definitely appears to be writing apologetically in defense of Christianity and Paul, and not just as a reporter of case history and legal facts. Paul did not have a defense attorney while he was in Judea. We know that because Acts shows that he defended himself in every hearing and trial during the two years he was held in custody in Caesarea. 
nor is there any mention in the latter chapters of Acts of a defense attorney in Rome, unless, of course, Theophilus is that attorney, and and I believe that's the case. Uh, And we know from Roman court records, however, that it was normal for Roman citizens who appealed to Caesar to have a defense attorney working with them and for them on their behalf. And Theophilus certainly would fit that scenario very well. Paul would have known, even before he reached Rome, that he would need a good defense to get him acquitted before Nero. So he would have needed Luke to at least gather all the facts, do his research before heading to Rome. How early in the Caesarean imprisonment Luke began doing his research and making his notes is difficult to guess. It was probably hastened along once Paul realized that he would have to appeal to Caesar. The plot by 40 men to ambush and kill him would have been enough to make him start thinking about getting out of Judea, and his Roman citizenship would have been an easy way to accomplish that. So it seems like that was probably on his mind, especially when we realize that Jesus appeared to him in the jail there in Jerusalem in AD 58, right after he was arrested, and Jesus told him that he must testify the gospel in Rome also, Acts chapter 23, verse 11. And here we see, right at the very beginning of his arrest and imprisonment in Caesarea, him being told by Jesus directly, by revelation, that uh, he would have to go to Rome. So Paul had to wonder, how in the world am I going to get to Rome? It would not have taken much imagination for him to see what Jesus was alluding to. And so he must have figured out that I must have to appeal to Caesar to get out of here. All he had to do was wait for the appropriate moment to make the appeal to Caesar. That opportunity came in his hearing before Festus and Agrippa. So Paul could have commissioned Luke to begin gathering his information in preparation for writing a document like Luke and Acts while they were still there in Caesarea. However, when they got on the boat and they were shipwrecked, it's not likely that any of Luke's notes would have survived the shipwreck. This would have forced both books to have been written after they arrived in Rome unless they had written some notes or a preliminary copy of Luke and Acts and left those copies in Jerusalem, which were then copied and sent to Rome after Paul arrived there in 61. But there seems to be no time for that kind of correspondence to take place, nor does the book of Acts hint of any of that kind of activity taking place. It makes much more sense that Luke composed both his gospel and the book of Acts in Rome soon after Paul arrived there in AD 61, so that Paul would have had them ready before his case went to trial in AD 63. Chapters 21 through 28 of Acts, the last eight chapters, could not have been written until after they reached Rome in AD 61. Anyway, so along with Acts 11:24 mentioning Barnabas as if he was already dead, means that the first 11 chapters also were probably not written until after Barnabas died in AD 60 or 61. 
So I think that pretty much cinches the argument for the whole book of Acts to have been written in 61 or later. Of course, the last three verses of the book of Acts, uh, verses 29 through 31, appear to have been written by Luke after Paul's release in AD 63 and then added to the otherwise finished book of Acts. Since Acts chapters 21 through 28 were certainly not written until after they reached Rome in 61, it would seem likely that the rest of the book of Acts was written then also, especially in view of those statements in Acts 11.24 about Barnabas already being dead and eulogizing him. Additionally, there is a tradition which says that just before Barnabas was killed by the Jews on Cyprus, he had instructed Mark to go to Paul after his death. According to that tradition, Barnabas already had a copy of Matthew's gospel at that time, so that Mark could have taken Matthew's gospel along with his own gospel of Mark, which he wrote during his missionary activity on Cyprus with Barnabas. He would have taken Matthew's gospel and Mark, his own gospel, to Paul when he went to Paul in Rome after the death of Barnabas. Luke then would have had access to those other two Gospels, Matthew and Mark, enabling Luke to easily compose a third account of the Gospel that was directed toward a Gentile audience, especially in Nero's court at Rome. This would explain why all three Gospels are so similar in content and organization and yet they differ in the way they address their respective audiences. Matthew was obviously written for a Jewish audience, while Luke was written for a Gentile audience. Matthew was written first, and I believe uh, probably sometime before 49 AD when they had the Jerusalem Council, and Barnabas and Paul went up to Jerusalem for that council, and we learn that Shortly after that, Barnabas had a copy of Matthew, which he took with him on his missionary trip to Cyprus in 50 AD. And so he probably obtained that copy of Matthew at the Jerusalem Council when he was there. And the tradition says that Matthew made a special copy for Barnabas. And so uh, I believe it had to have been written before the Jerusalem Council, which means sometime in AD 48 or even before that. So I've dated Matthew at AD 48, possibly earlier, but that's a good date to stick with. It's a very conservative estimate and has good tradition and biblical support to back it up. And then Mark would have used that copy of Matthew that Barnabas had to compose his own version of the gospel sometime while they were on the island of Cyprus after they parted ways with Paul and Silas in AD 50. Paul and Silas went on their way to their second missionary journey while Barnabas and Mark went to Cyprus to begin about a 10-year missionary work there on that island. And sometime about the middle of that 10 years, uh, probably AD 55, Mark would have had access to Matthew and written the Gospel of Mark. 
Luke then used both of those epistles that Mark brought with him to Rome to compose his third account of the gospel in AD 61, I believe. Those who have done careful analysis of the three gospels have noticed that Mark has additional material that Matthew does not have, suggesting that Mark was written later because there's no reason for Matthew to have left that material out if he was basing his account on Mark, because Matthew is the, is the bigger account. Students of, of the synoptic problem have pointed out that uh, it seems like Mark was written after Matthew for that reason. And same thing for Luke. Uh, Luke has some unique material that was not borrowed from either Matthew or Mark, suggesting that Luke was written after Matthew and Mark were already available to him. And this again points to the probability that Luke and Acts were written in Rome shortly after Paul arrived there and shortly after Mark uh, had arrived there as well with copies of Matthew and Mark. Luke and Acts then were written and finished before Paul's case went to trial in front of Nero in AD 63. Now I want to talk a little bit more about uh, some of Paul's prison epistles that he wrote while he was there in prison in Rome. The first two, I believe, is Ephesians and Colossians. Sometime in about the middle of his imprisonment, probably around the winter of 62 AD, Uh, Paul released those two letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. A lot of insight into the timing and sequence of events from Paul's first arrest in Jerusalem in AD 58 down to the outbreak of the war in AD 66 can be gained about that period of time by analyzing the location and movements of Paul's traveling companions as they are mentioned in these prison epistles and post-prison epistles. Several specialized books on Apostle Paul have carefully analyzed all of this missionary activity. Uh, One of the best of those books that I've used uh, with great benefit, I believe, is uh, Arthur Ogden's book, The Development of the New Testament. Unfortunately, it's out of print right now, but you can probably get a copy of it by searching on the Internet and looking for the title of the book. It's The Development of the New Testament by Arthur Ogden, and you spell his last name O-G-D-E-N. It's fairly easy to nail down a range of possible dates for the composition of Ephesians and Colossians uh, by using the information in these historical uh, reconstruction books like Ogden's. Paul was sent to Rome in the late fall of AD 60 after being shipwrecked on the island of Malta where they spent the winter for three months. It was not until March of AD 61 at the earliest that they were able to board another Alexandrian grain ship and head toward Rome. This places the beginning of our date range for Ephesians and Colossians at March 61. Paul stayed two full years under house arrest in Rome before he was released. The earliest date for his release would have been March of 63. This gives us a two-year time span in which the books of Ephesians and Colossians must have been written. 
Well, uh, I think we can be a little more accurate in pinpointing uh, the date of these two epistles. And we can do that by looking at some of the internal information that we find in the books of Ephesians and Colossians. Were they written near the beginning of his imprisonment, in the middle, or near the end in 63? That's the question that we're trying to figure out. We know that they were written while Paul was in prison in Rome. Uh, Ephesians, of course, chapter 3, verse 1, just flat out states that. And uh, he was awaiting his trial before Nero. In Ephesians 6, Paul says that, that he has sent Tychicus with his letter so that, quote, you may know about my circumstances how I am doing. Tychicus will make everything known to you that you may know about us and that he may comfort your hearts, end quote. Evidently, Paul had been in Rome long enough to know what his status was. He would not have sent word to them if his situation was still unknown or subject to change anytime soon. This implies that at least a few months had passed after he had arrived there in Rome, and maybe even longer. He most likely would not have waited more than a few months to let them know about his situation if, in fact, he knew what it was. And it might have taken him a few months before he knew whether his situation was stable or not. But as soon as he understood what his situation was, he would have written to them. Things seemed to be stable at the time of writing, with no hint of immediate danger. Evidently, they were expected to remain in stable condition for several months. Otherwise, this report would not have been sent to Ephesus and Colossae. Tychicus was sent to comfort their hearts about the situation. Neither do these words imply his anticipation of acquittal and release, as would have been the case if it had been written nearer the end of his two years of imprisonment. Thus, a date in the middle of the range would seem appropriate. Paul tended to write his letters and make copies of them during the winter time when travel and activity outside was not really feasible. And then he would send his couriers out with those letters in the spring. This would again point to a date in the middle of the two-year imprisonment, which would be the winter of A.D. 62. And they would have been sent out to Ephesus and Colossae in the early spring, probably March or April of 62. Some have suggested that the closing greetings of Ephesians and Colossians might give us some clues as to when they were written, especially when those greetings are compared with the closing greetings of his other prison epistles. And here are the the closing greetings from all five epistles. Ephesians uh, 6 verse 24 closes with this statement, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Colossians 4.18 closes this way, Grace be with you. Philippians 4.23 says, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And Philemon, verse 25, is exactly the same as Philippians 4.23. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. 
And then Hebrews, the fifth of Paul's prison epistles, uh, chapter 13, verse 25, closes with this greeting. Grace be with you all. And so only two of those books have a similar greeting, and that's Philippians and Philemon, and they're exactly the same word for word, letter for letter. And of course that suggests that they were written probably near the same time, and in fact, by looking at the internal evidence, we know that they were written right near the end of Paul's imprisonment when he was already anticipating a release and already planning what he would do after he was released. So these endings on these five epistles, prison epistles, don't tell us much about Ephesians and Colossians. However, it does help us reinforce the idea that Philippians and Philemon were written about the same time. The similarity in travel plans of Paul and Timothy mentioned in both Philippians 2.24 and Hebrews 13, verse 23, suggests that both Philippians and Hebrews were written right near the end of Paul's first imprisonment in the spring of A.D. 63. So, the similarity of Philippians and Philemon may indicate that Philemon was written about the same time as Philippians and Hebrews. But this does not help us much trying to nail down the dates of Ephesians and Colossians, other than to suggest that they were both written at the same time, which was probably when Paul's condition in prison was stable and not expected to change much in the next few months. And that, again, would place it in the middle of his imprisonment, probably in the winter of 62 A.D. Now, Tychicus was the courier that carried both epistles, Ephesians and Colossians, to the churches in Turkey. There is some evidence from Paul's epistles to help us pinpoint when Tychicus might have done this courier service. It's the movements of Tychicus, I believe, that helps us pinpoint these dates a little bit better. Tychicus is mentioned in the epistle to Titus, which was written sometime after Paul was released. It seems that Tychicus had already delivered the two epistles of Ephesians and Colossians to the churches in Asia Minor months earlier and had now already returned to Paul and was leaving again on another courier trip to visit Titus in Crete in AD 63 after Paul was released. We see Tychicus in Ephesus later when Paul wrote Second Timothy during his second imprisonment at the time of the Neuronic persecution in late 64. So the movements of Tychicus do help support the idea that these two epistles of Ephesians and Colossians were written during the middle of Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, giving Tychicus enough time before the end of his imprisonment to deliver those letters to Ephesus and Colossae and return to Paul before he was released from prison so that he was there in time to take another letter to Titus in the spring of AD 63. Well, that's an interesting way of nailing down the date. 
There's a lot of other evidence inside the books of Ephesians and Colossians, which I think will help nail that date down. But that's enough, I think, to put it right in the middle of Paul's imprisonment there and probably in the winter of 62 A.D. Now, some people who have read the book of Colossians have noticed that it mentions an epistle of Paul that is coming to Colossae from the church at Laodicea. Many people have been confused by that reference to a a letter coming from Laodicea, thinking that perhaps there's a missing letter that we don't have from Paul that maybe we can find off in the future and add to our New Testament canon. And I get a question about that quite often when I mention the books of Ephesians and Colossians. However, most of the commentaries on the book of Ephesians and Colossians discuss this issue and explain that the epistle to the Ephesians is probably that missing letter. The reason they say that is because there's a couple of manuscripts of Ephesians which have a blank where the word Ephesus is in the opening chapter of Ephesians. And it leaves the word Ephesus out of there, suggesting then that the letter to the Ephesians was in fact a general letter written to a a group of churches starting from Ephesus. And that the reason the blank was there and did not have a name of a city included is because the name of the city would be supplied by the courier who read the epistle to that particular church as he passed from one church to the next on his cycle through all the churches there in the west coast of Turkey. So it was a general encyclical that was intended to be read in all the churches in Turkey. And there's a number of arguments from inside the book of Ephesians which they use to justify that theory. And guess which city was the last city on that circuit just before it reached Colossae? Laodicea was that city. And so if the letter started in Ephesus and made the circle of the seven churches of Asia, it would have ended up in Laodicea before it reached Colossae. That theory, that it was a general encyclical, is a, is a pretty good one. And I think that explains what that epistle was that was coming from Laodicea that Paul wanted the Colossians to read in addition to the letter that he sent to them. Well, I have a, an eight-page paper that I wrote about all this which goes into several different commentaries and explains the evidence for and against this idea that Ephesians is that letter to the Laodiceans uh, that is mentioned in the book of Colossians. If you'd like to have a PDF copy of that eight-page paper that I wrote for one of my master's degree courses, I'd be glad to send it to you. Uh, it's, it's The name of it is Ephesians Intro, and you can simply uh, email me at preterist one at preterist.org and I'll be glad to send that to you. The name of it again is Ephesians Intro. Just email me and request it. Okay, let's talk a little bit more about uh, a couple of the other epistles that Paul wrote while he was in prison in Rome. uh, Philippians and Philemon. And of course Philemon is the name of a guy who lived in Colossae. Philemon evidently was a very wealthy guy. 
he had slaves, one of which uh, was a runaway slave that Paul met in prison in Rome and sent back to Philemon with this letter asking Philemon to forgive that slave and restore him to his place of service underneath Philemon and at the same time to prepare a place of lodging for Paul because Paul was going to be released shortly and he would make a fast track to Colossae to stay with Philemon. So, very interesting letter. Uh, If you have never read it, uh, you probably would enjoy the personal information that's included in there. Philemon and Philippians both were written toward the end of that imprisonment, right before he was released. He certainly knew he was going to be released uh, when he wrote Philemon. It seems that he was pretty sure he was going to be released when he wrote Philippians, suggesting that Philippians might have been written just a little bit before Philemon. The letter to the Philippians suggests that he was informing the church at Philippi about his soon release, implying that he was probably going to pass through Philippi on his way to Colossae. Well, what's interesting also is that Philippians chapter 2, verse 23 and 24 mentions that he's going to be released soon. Very interesting to compare that section in Philippians 2 with uh, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 23, where Paul, writing to the Hebrew Christians, says that he is planning to come with Timothy to visit them soon. We know that he was probably going through Philippi and definitely going to end up at Colossae. So if you follow the circuit around through Greece and Macedonia and through Troas and around the seven churches of Asia and wind up at Colossae, uh, it's, it's a pretty good indication that the book of Hebrews was written to all the Jewish Christians in all those churches that were going to be on that path between Rome and Colossae and he's coming to visit them soon after he's released from prison and he's going to bring Timothy with him or go with Timothy to visit them. He's probably going to drop Timothy off there at Ephesus on his way through. Well this not only supports the Pauline authorship of the book of Hebrews but it also fixes the date of all three books Philippians, Philemon, and Hebrews as being written near the time of Paul's release from Roman imprisonment in the spring of 63 A.D. So that nails down the date for three more of our New Testament books. Philemon, in verses 1 and verses 10 through 12 and verses 23 through 24, tell us that Timothy, Onesimus, Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke were with Paul at the time he wrote the, the book of Philemon. Aphia and Archippus were in Colossae with Philemon at the time he wrote. And note here that Demas was still with Paul and had not yet deserted him, as we learn later in Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. So this, again, dates Philemon before the Neronic persecution, at which time Demas fell away and returned to Judaism. And we know he returned to Judaism because in 2 Timothy 4, verse 10, it says he deserted Paul, having loved this present age, which is a reference to the Jewish age, the Old Testament age. 
the Jewish persecution evidently must have made him turn back to Judaism for fear of being killed in the Neuronic persecution. Okay, I think we're going to end there. Next time we're probably going to get into Paul's release from his imprisonment and the activity after that release up until the time he was arrested again in 64 during the Neuronic persecution. So we'll deal with his release and activity afterwards in our next study together. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.